Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to House of Cards. Today, the game is different. I want to gamble. Gambling is a very serious business. Is that clear? Welcome to House of Cards. Dave Weishato with you here, deep from the swamps of Jersey. we got a great show coming up for you. I love books about the gambling industry, and I just read one that's an incredible look at how casinos handle security and collect debts from their customers who are a little reluctant to pay their bills. The name of the book is Joe's Dash, from Million Dollar Drug Busts to Multi-Million Dollar Collections for Las Vegas Casinos. The book is the story about Joe Dorsey, who rose through the ranks of the San Diego Police Department, then moved to Vegas to handle security and debt collection for some of the biggest casinos in the world. And we are lucky to have the subject of this great book as a guest this week. After this break, Joe Dorsey is coming on and telling us some of his incredible stories from the gambling world. So stick around. We'll be right back with House of Cards. Attention. Here is something big banks don't want you to know about your IRA or 401k. You can store your retirement savings where you can actually see, touch, and hold it in your hands with a Paradigm Gold or Silver IRA. You can transfer a portion of your savings to physical gold and silver coin and store them where you can see them. The stock market is close to its all-time high, and your retirement might be at risk again. But you can trust Paradigm Gold Group to help. Call 800-417-3932. 800-417-3932. Paradigm Gold Group is a gold IRA leader. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau, where gold and silver has been in the family business for over 40 years. Call for your free guide to Paradigm's Gold IRA. Protect your retirement savings today with Paradigm. Call 800-417-3932. 800-417-3932. The sports betting community is back live in New Jersey at the Meadowlands Expo Center starting November 30th with the SBC Summit North America. For three days, SBC Summit North America brings together exhibitors, world-class hospitality, and the very best networking and business opportunities to some of the most exclusive venues in New York and New Jersey. With panels and events on investment, marketing, regulation, and many more relevant topics to the sports betting industry, the SBC Summit North America provides an experience second to none. The SBC Summit North America is brought to you by the SBC the largest media network in the sports betting industry. Join over 2,500 delegates, 200 speakers, and more than 50 exhibitors at SBC Summit North America, November 30th through December 2nd at the Meadowlands Expo Center in New Jersey. Head over to sbcevents.com for more information on this year's conference and register today. SBC Summit North America, brought to you by the SBC, the largest media network in the sports betting industry. Don't miss out on the largest dedicated sports betting trade show in the world. You're listening to the House of Cards. You lose track of time in those casinos. There's no windows, there's no clocks, and you never walk away from the table when you're on a heater. Welcome. 
Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you. I'm excited to talk to our next guest because he is the subject of an incredible book I just read. The name of the book is called Joe's Dash, From Million Dollar Drug Busts to Multi-Million Dollar Collections for Las Vegas Casinos. And it's all about Joe Dorsey, from his rise as a San Diego police officer to working with some of the biggest casino properties in the world. And to tell us all about his life and his book, Joe Dorsey is on the line with us right now. Joe, thanks for coming on. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I got to tell you, I really love Joe's Dash. It, it gives you an insight on some of the casino business that no one really gets to see. I, how did this project come about? Well, the project came about, uh, my wife has been after me for many years as other people to write a book. I really wasn't interested until Karen met Linda Ellis, who uh, mm-hmm. wrote the famous poem called The Dash. And uh, Linda talked to me and said, you know, about 10 years ago about doing a book. And I nah, I really don't want to do it. And uh, so I got sick for about three years. I was, you know, on life support three times. And my poor wife, she went through it all. And Linda came back to town. And Linda said, look, I'll do the book for you. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'll let you know. And then my wife came to me that night. She says, you're going to take Linda up on writing the book with you? And uh, I said, well, you know, and as I can do sometimes, I was hemming and hawing. And uh, (laughs) she looked looked up at me and said, would you do it for me? Well, you know what happened after that. Oh, absolutely. I got a book. (laughs) (laughs) So that's basically how it started. Like I said, it's an incredible book, and, and, it, it, and it details your absolute incredible life. I mean, you grew up as far away from the glitter of the Las Vegas Strip as you can get. What, what was it like growing up where you grew up in Cleveland? Well, I grew up in projects. I mean, you know, it was a large Catholic family. You know, there were eight kids, my parents and grandmother, living in public housing. And uh, that I believe it had, if I can remember, it had three room, three bedrooms. But uh, we eventually finally got out of the projects and ended up. Uh, my dad bought a house out in the suburbs, and uh, when I was eleven, my father passed away, and my mother began drinking heavily. And uh, next thing I know, we're back in the projects. So I was in the projects, and uh, she had a serious problem. She'd disappear for days. And I had three siblings, and I was the oldest at 11 and 12. And uh, there were times when, you know, she would be gone, and we didn't have food. We didn't have anything. My older sister, Mary Jo, stopped one day. And uh, I can recall it, you know, just like it was yesterday. It was on a Friday night. She looked around and she started checking refrigerators and cupboards and, you know, the cupboards were better. Hmm. So that was it. Her and my older sister took us, Mary Jo and my sister took myself and my younger sister. And the two younger boy and girl, Tim and Julianne, were taken by our older sister, Betty. And it was a life-saving moment. Mm-hmm. for that to happen because uh, I was being supported by 
you know, trying to get food on the table uh, from a friend of mine who was a burglar. Oh, wow. And he saw how destitute we were. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he stopped by, you need money, kid. And, uh, of course, I took it. So got out of there, got back living with my sister in a regimented home with, you know, regular duties. And as, as a kid, you know, you got chores and stuff. And sure. I grew up with them and ended up um, at the 18, going into the service, went into the Navy. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was about five below zero in Cleveland. <laughs> And I got to the I got to the recruiter, and he said, "Where would you like to go to boot camp?" And that surprised me. And I said, uh, uh, "What do you got?" And he said, "I have uh, Great Lakes." Well, I know that's Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, you know, just like Chicago out here." And he says, "How about San Diego?" And I knew I didn't know where it was, basically in California, but I knew it didn't snow there. Yeah. And uh, so off I went. Boot camp there, got stationed at the Naval Air Station across the bay, North Island, and uh, ended up uh, having a, a, a great time in the military. I think everybody should spend some time in the military. If you're in a war, huh? you know, got promoted and did things mm-hmm. and uh, basically got out. Uh, in fact, I was in Japan when President Kennedy was killed, and uh, it was remarkable, the response from the Japanese people. Got out of the Navy, was, got a letter from the Army telling me to come to the recruiter's office, which time I went down and asked him what this was about. And he says, well, with your M- MOS, which is your job code number, on those secret helicopters, he said, uh, we're going to make you a warrant officer and uh, let you fly Hueys. And this is in 1964. Now, I had been through the Far East and met some intelligence guys that told me about the problems with Vietnam, and they were coming. They were going to happen. And so I knew that I didn't want to fly. He was in the Army <laughs> with what, what was coming. Yeah, so yeah. Coast Guard recruiter was there. He said, look, we're getting those same helicopters. We have nobody in, in the Coast Guard knows anything about these things. They'll be trained, of course, and... Uh, but uh, what's it going to take to get you? And I basically said, you know, I'm at the same rank. I want guaranteed flight pay, which was a big deal. Yeah. And four years in San Diego. And that's what happened. And in the Coast Guard, it was probably the most rewarding job I ever Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. See you on the other side. You know, ever since the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision lifting the national ban on sports betting, the gambling landscape of the country is changing on a daily basis. So how do you keep up with all the latest news and developments? You go to the one site that has all the information you need to stay ahead of the game, and that site is usbets.com. With usbets.com, you'll get up-to-date information on not just the sports betting scene, but also the latest news and notes on the entire gaming industry all across the country. It's not just one state, it's all of them in one spot. Get the latest news on sports betting and gambling from the country's number one gambling magazine. Get on over to usbets.com. You're listening to House of Cards. Check out our website at houseofcardsradio.com.
Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with Joe Dorsey, the subject of the book Joe's Dash, from million-dollar drug busts to multi-million-dollar collections for the Las Vegas casinos. You really seem to find a home in San Diego. I mean, after your Coast Guard, it led you to a job in law enforcement. What, What did you do in law enforcement? Well, and of course, like everybody else, I went to you know through the police academy, came out, and I worked uniform for four years. Uh, part of that time in uniform, I was assigned to a, an organization that San Diego Police Department, the only police department the country had, was called a Secondary School Task Force. I was there was one of sixteen officers, two man teams were assigned. We had two high schools and two junior highs that our job was just to go to those schools, give talks, handle any policing problems there. When I first went, to be honest with you, I thought, man, I don't want to go out and babysit a bunch of kids. <laughs> you know, I did. Yeah. That's how I felt. But I got there, and you have to understand, after working the streets for three years, you get pretty cynical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I got there and started to meet these kids, and they understood what I was doing. I understood what they were doing. And the thing that probably pushed me over the top, and this was in 1970, 1972, I think. But anyway, we, we we put classes together and we spoke at them and they could ask us anything they wanted and we'd be honest with them. And uh, we uh, asked how many people in here want to legalize marijuana? And I was shocked when it was probably 90% of the kids didn't want it legalized. Really? And I thought, these kids are pretty smart. Yeah. So the, the thing that happened with these kids is they began to trust us. They started bringing things to us. And if they brought them to a teacher, the teacher would have to identify who brought it to them. Mm-hmm. We didn't. We didn't have to do it. So these problems you see today in these schools with the shootings and everything, the one, it has one common denominator. The kids knew about it. Mm-hmm. They knew that these guys were making threats. They knew they were doing this and that. So uh, I got promoted detective out of there, and uh, I went to burglary, people, uh, petty thefts, breaking into your house, things like that, mm-hmm. crimes against uh, property. And then I was assigned to uh, the narcotics unit, which surprised me. Uh <laughs> And uh, from narcotics unit, uh, the police department's unit was just underfunded like crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, we had to borrow things from other agencies to get the job done. But San Diego had a, it was a pretty smart chief of police that thought, let's put the sheriffs and the cops together, narcotics. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, you know, we'll quit spinning our wheels doing the same cases. And then when DEA was formed in 73, DEA decided they wanted to be part of this and they wanted to fund it, which was great for us because when I was with the police department, we never got paid overtime. Mm -hmm. We only got compensatory time. And under federal law, they had to pay us time and a half. And uh, I mean, to us, it was like, you know, dying and going to heaven. And we got brand new undercover cars every year, state-of-the-art radios, uh, the facilities we had. We had everybody you can think of that was in the task force, from ATF, U.S. Marshals, 
United States Attorney's Office, some of the small towns in California were in it, and it ballooned up to 55-man operation. Uh, I met my partner in narcotics when I went to narcotics. I had forgot that I'd met him before on an operation when he was with SEAL teams and I was in the Coast Guard. And uh, he remembered it, and being the two new guys, we were partners, and we excelled. I mean, we really excelled at uh, narcotic enforcement. We we were canceling cases. We got an award one year for a Class 1 violator with the Drug Enforcement Administration is the top guy. Mm-hmm. You can't get hired than him. And we got called in one time, and the chief of police was there, the sheriff, and the regional director from DEA. And I'm thinking, what did my partner do? <laughs> so, so anyway, we ended up uh, getting an award for, in a nine-month period, we arrested six class one violators. I got to tell you, and, I, re- I read the book, and you had some pretty interesting uh, drug cases right. that you were involved with and some in, in some pretty dangerous situations. But the one that stuck right. out to me was the guy that actually drove up to the police station and showed you the amount of pot in his car. <laughs> I mean, yeah. back right, out, right after I graduated law school, I worked in the DA's office in Boston, and I would love a case oh, like that. You? But was that your best day ever on the job? Yeah, that was one of I thought it was, <laughs> see, if you were with San Diego PD, one, one week a year you had to go down to the station and test dope that was recovered by the patrol uniform uh-huh. guys. And to make sure, you know, it is so you can take the complaint over to the DA and file it. The phone rang, and I was it was my week, and the guy said, hey, you know, I heard about this. Uh, uh, do the Mexicans, are they spraying marijuana with Paraquat? And I said, <laughs> yes, they are. And he says, well, you know, how can I get it tested? I said, well, <laughs> we test it. <laughs> and, the, and the guy says, you do? I said, sure. I said, just come on down to the police station at, you know, Market and the Pacific Coast Highway and go to the business office up front and tell the officer you want me. I I thought it was one of my guys from the task force playing a joke on me. Yeah, yeah, no, that was uh, too good to be true. Yeah, the guy shows up (laughs) and, you know, we're talking in the office and there's a uniformed guy there and and he's talking and I says, well, yeah, we can do it. Where's Where's your stuff? Where's your marijuana? And I expected him to reach in his pocket, pull out a baggie of weed. And he says, come on. And I told the uniform, come on along. I don't know what this is about. And uh, Kid popped the trunk, and I think there were 30 kilos of marijuana <laughs> in the trunk. So I arrested him. And he said, this is entrapment. I said, nah, look at your park right in front of us. And I said, San Diego Police Department. And I said, come on. Don't even go there. But I did, you know, you being a, a, a deputy DA. You go to issuing, and I'm sure it's the same all over the country. Sure. The new guy get issuing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's who you get. You get the new guys you're learning. So I took it to the guy, and he wouldn't. He, he wasn't going to issue it. <laughs> he said, "No, this can't be right." And one one of the senior DAs came in, and he he told him that, "No, nah, I suggest you issue." <laughs> so he issued it. Another time that I think it was one of the one of my best is, well, there were two other times. The, the one time is when I 
uh, the Border Patrol caught a guy up on Interstate 5 north of San Diego, and the guy had, uh, I think he had 120 or 150 kilos of weed in the trunk. And I was a duty agent, so I had to go up and process him and process the dope. And the story he told about being in the movie business and, and working with special effects, he pulled this con on his drug dealer that he had had for many years. He couldn't pay for the drugs, so they robbed the guy. What happened is I convinced the guy that I'd cut him loose if he returned the dope to the dope dealer that he bought it from down in San Diego. And he gave me the guy's name, and the guy was a class one violator. Now, I'm thinking, do I care about this 150 kilos or the guy who I know is a heavy-duty dealer? So I rehearsed him all night. He called the guy that went to my boss in the morning as I was up all night and said, look, I got this deal, and here's what I want to do. He said, are you crazy? He says, we're in the business of season dope, not giving it back. And I says, listen to me. Here's the guy who we buy it, who he robbed. Took it to the bosses, and they came out, and they put some conditions on it. But anyway, as a long story short, we had him give him the dope. And out in the beach area of San Diego, have him give the dealer the dope, apologize for what happened. And uh, we followed the guy back to his place. But it got a little hairy. We lost mm-hmm. him just before. We didn't know where he was going. And we lost, we had an airplane up and a surveillance team. And we lost him. But a few minutes later, they found him getting out of the car in a rural area. And we ended up seizing uh, a thousand pounds of marijuana the unusual heavy-duty amount of cocaine, and thousands of dollars in cash. We'll be right back with House of Cards. Is your bathroom looking old and worn out? Want to update it, but you don't know where to start? Then let VCI Bath & Shower show you how to turn that old bath into an aisle of beauty and functionality. Our residential bathroom solutions provide the best value on the market, and our customer service is second to none. Our cost-effective VCI Bath & Shower family of products has what you need. Remodeling our bathroom was a big decision for us. They didn't make a mess out of our house at all. And at the end of the day, we had a beautiful new bathroom. And it was a great experience the whole way through. We have the best monthly payment programs in the industry, with payments as low as $68 per month, or no interest, no payments for 18 months. That's right. Get the bathroom of your dreams now and pay for it in 2021. Call 1-800-308-8291 for a free no-obligation price quote. That's 1-800-308-8291. When you want quality bathroom products at a great price, it's got to be BCI Bath & Shower. That's 1-800-308-8291. Auto Accident Help Desk is a marketing agency connecting callers with attorneys. Providers pay a fee for advertising services. I love getting my kids ready and driving them to school. But a careless driver can change your life in an instant. And insurance companies want to settle on the cheap. 
Auto Accident Help Desk connects victims with powerful lawyers. They fight for you. I called Auto Accident Help Desk and got help for my pain and suffering. Don't let an insurance company take advantage of you. Our attorneys fight and beat big insurance every day. Call 800-297-9766. 800-297-9766. If you've been injured in an automobile accident in the last six months, you owe it to yourself to make this free call with no obligation. We're available 24-7 to help you get the money you deserve for your pain and suffering. Auto Accident Help Desk helps accident victims like you every day. Call 800-297-9766. 800-297-9766. Hey, this is Dave Weishadol from House of Cards with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of November fifteenth, two 2021. The National Football League announced a multi-year licensing deal with Aristocrat Gaming. Under the deal, Aristocrat will have the exclusive license to create NFL-themed slot machines, as well as a non-exclusive license to create virtual sports games. The slots, which will allow customers to customize their games to reflect their favorite football teams, could hit casino floors by the start of the 2023 NFL season. Jackpocket announced that a customer in New Jersey has won $9.4 million using their app. According to the company, this is the largest amount ever won on any gaming platform in the United States. The Union County, New Jersey winner won the jackpot playing the New Jersey Pick 6 Lotto. This year alone, Jackpocket has seen nearly 630,000 winners, with 7,000 of those winners winning $100 or more. And finally, if you're looking for a summer job, you might want to check out Stations Casinos. Recently, the casino company announced the return of their summer internship program. The 12-week program is for undergraduate students, pays $15 an hour, and includes meals and housing at the Green Valley Ranch, Red Rock Casino, Palace Station, or Sunset Station. Sounds like a great summer job. Have any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation? Send us an email at newsroom at houseofcardsradio.com and follow us on Twitter at HOC Radio. You know, ever since the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision lifting the national ban on sports betting, the gambling landscape of the country is changing on a daily basis. So how do you keep up with all the latest news and developments? You go to the one site that has all the information you need to stay ahead of the game, and that site is usbets.com. With usbets.com, you'll get up-to-date information on not just the sports betting scene, but also the latest news and notes on the entire gaming industry all across the country. It's not just one state, it's all of them in one spot. Get the latest news on sports betting and gambling from the country's number one gambling magazine. Get on over to usbets.com. You're listening to the House of Cards. Well, don't take it too hard. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, too. Stupid! What do you mean, stupid? Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with Joe Dorsey, the subject of the book Joe's Dash, from million-dollar drug busts to multi-million-dollar collections for the Las Vegas casinos. I want to ask you about your move to the Nevada Gaming Control Board in the 1980s. Right. You, you started working mm-hmm. there. How, how did you make that move? How did a law enforcement officer in San Diego get involved with the Nevada Gaming Control Board? Well, they, I was working robbery after narcotics, and I uh, had an agent from the Game and Control Board come in, and I was the only guy in the office. And he was doing a background on a guy from San Diego who was trying to get a gaming license. And 
he didn't know what to do. So I said, come on, I'll take you down. We went to records and we did all, everything for him. And, and, and I was asking, well, you know, what do you guys do? And, you know, they travel worldwide and they do all this stuff and they don't need search warrants and they don't need to deal with judges. And uh, so he mentioned that he had a, this guy had lived in a foreign country. And uh, I said, you got somebody to help you with that? And he said, no. So I called my contact in that foreign country and got him the information he needed. And he went back and told his boss. So they got this guy in San Diego. And it was working narcotics with all these DEA guys, ATF, all of these guys. Uh, I had contacts worldwide. So they made me a job offer. My wife was a singer. Mm -hmm. And she was, in fact, she signed a contract with the MGM on the same day that I started with the Nevada Gaming Control Board. <laughs> San Diego didn't pay well in those days. And going to the Gaming Control Board, I got a $5,000 a year raise and another raise because there were no state income tax. So uh, it was, a. I enjoyed it. I mean, I went every. What were your duties at the Nevada Gaming Control Board? Well, I was an agent, investigations mm -hmm. division, and a license division, uh, doing uh, background investigations on applicants, whether they be junket reps who have to be licensed or people on the board of directors and or the, 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 the actual owners of the casinos. And you were investigate people that had association with the mob back then and... Uh, uh, but you would go, you would investigate back about 25 years. So you would go go out and go to the cities where they lived and, and go to the colleges where they said they graduated from, which is another story. Then I'd come back and write a comprehensive report for the gaming control board members to make a decision on whether to approve them or not to. And then it, from there, it would go to the gaming commission where they had the final say-so, whether the guy got licensed or not. You know, I, I was struck by the amount of traveling you had to do for the uh, Gaming Control Board. And, and oh. in fact, in the book, you said you were just returning home from an investigation you were doing in Australia when you were offered right. the job of Director of Security at the Hilton Corporation. Was it a difficult right. decision to leave the Nevada Gaming Control Board and go take a job at Hilton? Not really. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I really didn't know about it. A friend of mine knew about the job there. In fact, I got him a job at the Gaming Board. The gaming board, you know, it was in those days, it was, it, I had five chiefs in five years. You know, the turnover rate, wow. usually you get a chief for 20 years. Yeah, law right. board. I was concerned about the future, and but I knew that gaming would expand in Las Vegas. I had no doubts in my mind. And when uh, I heard of the Hilton and I told him I was interested and I was interviewed by uh, Henry Lewin and Barron. You know, just took off from there. Then I joined up with Dennis Gomes, and I'm sure some of your listeners back in the East Coast sure. know who Dennis Gomes is uh, and what a great boss he was. Uh, you know, people don't realize that Dennis Gomes was in the movie Casino. Mm -hmm. He was the one that stirred up, found the information about all the skimming going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he was with the Gaming Control Board, he wasn't there when I was there, right? He left a year before I got there. But what an incredible boss. 
he knew I knew what I was doing at the Hilton, and he stole me away when he got uh, hired at the Aladdin. Mm-hmm. He said, "Look, you can whatever you want. I'll give it to you, but I want you to come with me." And uh, we did, and I took some of the people from the Hilton with me, and uh, it was a short-lived. It was the first uh, Japanese owner of a casino in Las Vegas. He really didn't understand. He thought, you know, if you open the doors, there's going to be money pouring in every day. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it really had to work to get those customers in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we kind of, Dennis fell out of favor with them, and we weren't too concerned about it because the Gaming Control Board wanted us to be in there mm-hmm. because Dennis's history with the board, mine, they felt comfortable. There wasn't going to be any funny business going on if we were in there. So, but we informed them. They're the first people we informed we were leaving. Uh, we're going to the dunes to another Japanese owner. The owner, he, he was a gambler himself. And we had a bunch of customers come in and play in Baccarat, big, big players. $12 million we had access to that we were, that with play that you know we possibly could have won. And he comes down and he's talking to all the players because he knows them. Mm-hmm. They're Japanese too. And uh, what's he do? He takes them, takes the players down to the dunes and lets them win the 12 million so he could sit with them and play with them. Now, that's kind of stupid. Yeah, real stupid. We got into the dunes, and the dunes was a mess. You know, the dunes always been a mess. Uh, nobody put any money in it and stuff like that. And uh, we started bringing in some big players, and we started doing okay. And then... The process of getting things done with the Japanese is difficult. Casinos, you make a decision right now. You know, <laughs> am I going to give this guy a million dollars in credit or am I going to do this, do that? That's immediate. With the Japanese, it would have to go to a committee in Japan. By the time you get the information back, the guy's dead. Yeah. And uh, Steve Wynn knew he was, uh, Dennis formed a company called Clark Management and there were about six of us in it, and Steve Wynn had, was just finishing up the Mirage, and uh, he knew that 90% of his staff was going to leave the Golden Nugget. And the Golden Nugget was a nice property. So he hired Dennis, and we all went down there to the Golden Nugget, and uh, you know through the transition of people going to the Mirage. Mm-hmm. That's when I first got into the collection business. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about your collection work in a little bit, but I, I want to ask you, uh, talk, talk about shady dealings. You, when you started working for the Tropicana, you discovered some scams oh. and stealing from the casino that was actually being done by the staff. Can you explain oh. what was going on with the staff at the Tropicana that you found out about? Yeah, De- Dennis went to work at Dodge Mahal, came back, and I was working for International Game Technology back then as the Director of Corporate Security. So... I know Dennis is going to call me. I know he's going to call me and want me to come back because the traps have been notorious for crooks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the owners were mob guys for years. He calls. We cut a deal. I uh, I go over there. In the first 15 minutes, I went down to the marketing VP, who was a friend of mine. He's part of Dennis's crew. And I said, bring up some play on, on the crap game and he did and, and I said stop right there look at that 
I says, they got a guy betting $250 a hand, and he's being, we're going from the ratings, $250 a hand for 18 hours. And my response was, he better be in a wheelchair, because I don't know anybody who can do that. And uh, reviewed the surveillance tape, because I was over surveillance there and over security, and found out that there was nobody on the game. The game was closed most of the time. So what I found is they had a rating scam going on, and it was the pit bosses. What they would do is they would add a guy as a customer and get him a, a, a card that he can swipe for, you know, his play, his ratings. Well, what they were doing is they were putting in phony names, running the cards through the games to build up the ratings for these guys would be RFB, room, food, and beverage. And some of them were airfare. They were so big. And they were selling those cards and the names to people for about six, seven hundred bucks. And they come in and they they could stay as long as they wanted. And, you know, got comp rooms, comp beverage, comp shows. Some even got comp air. But it was all, it was all phony people. There were these people weren't real. That's the first thing I found. And the second thing is that in the slot areas, well, back in the back, excuse me, let me get back to the casino. Then you had the dealers, uh, especially the crap dealers. The crap dealers were hustling the hell out of the customers. What I mean by hustling, they're saying, hey, bet for us, you know, do this, do that. Yeah, bet for the boys. It's, it's called a hard hustle, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I set up a test. I brought a guy in who knew craps. I says, you don't do anything what they tell you to do. And I gave him $1,000. And I said, go down and play. And he went down and played, did everything they did. And in an hour, we shut the game down. The actual game had $48 dropped in the box in an hour. And then we went in the tip box, and it was $460 in the tip box because they were hustling him so hard, he was doing everything they said. So that that was another problem. They were driving customers away. Met with them, said, look, it, you know, the fun's over. This is it. You start dealing regular, like you should be dealing. You'd be bringing in quality players, and those players are going to take care of you. You're running people out of the place. In fact, I had a saying that I wanted to put a poster by the business, by the uh where they check in to go to work, time office. Quit stealing. The mob went home. <laughs> and and uh, so I grabbed a bunch of them. Then I got into the slot department. There was another false rating crap going on in there. Then we had internal theft from others in the slot department. I had a lady. This is my favorite one. I was on a collection trip, came back, and my surveillance director, and I brought all these directors of mine in, mm-hmm. you know, to take care take care of the place when I was gone. So look, we got some suspicious activity in the main coin booth. And that's where they stored all the bags of the silver dollars for the slot machines. When they were running low, a floor person would be called. He'd come over, sign for a bag of 500 coins, and go put them in a slot machine. Well, the one guy went up, and he started to leave with the, with the bag in his hand. He said, wait a minute. This thing's light, and uh, he reported to the surveillance director. We set up cameras on the woman. She was on vacation when she came back. We saw her messing with the bags. I said, that's enough. Get her in here. So we got her in, 
started interviewing her. And uh, she was an elderly woman. Mm-hmm. And she, I said, look, at here's the deal. I don't have time for this. I mean, I got all kinds of fires going on. I said, you tell me who's involved with you and how you're getting into those bags to remove that coin. And I won't charge you. I won't have you prosecuted. I won't even tell the gaming authorities. She was reluctant. And I told her, I said, man, I, I, you know, I've made deals like this my whole life in law enforcement. So being honest with you, I'm not lying. You got witnesses here. And so because I needed to know how those seals were getting out those bags because mm-hmm. the other employees who worked the booth probably know it too. She explained that on the older bags, you could spin the seal off and then spin it back on. So at the end there, I said, okay, you're terminated. I'm keeping my deal with you. And I said, <laughs> I said, how much did you normally take? She had, I think she had about 250 bucks on her when we grabbed her. She was halfway through the ship. She says about $450. And I said, uh, every day? She says, yeah, every day. Wow. And I said, I asked her, I said, how long have you been doing this? She said, 11 years. Wow. Unbelievable. So she had, she had taken over a million dollars. And, uh, of course, I got a deal with her. And plus, I'm new there. I wasn't there when all this was transpiring. And they have audit units and people that are supposed to take care of that. All I wanted to do was stop it now. So uh, I lived up to my end of the bargain. We'll be right back with House of Cards. During these difficult times, we understand how important it is to stay healthy and safe. With so many of us confined to our homes and not being able to work, we feel the financial burden more than ever. Many folks lost their jobs and businesses. Others were furloughed and some are working from home at reduced pay. Keeping up with your bills is not easy under these circumstances. If you have credit card debt and cannot keep up with your monthly payments, we at Debt Fix Pros are here to help. Give us a call to see how we can reduce your interest rates and lower your monthly payments. Protect your credit and let us help you find a solution that fits your needs. We, your friends at Debt Fix Pros, are here to help. Let us take care of your credit card debt so you can focus on what is really important. Call for a free phone consultation at 800-919-6011. 800-919-6011. That's 800-919-6011. 800-919-6011. United we stand. Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff that will spice up your bedroom is even better. Just go to adamandeve.com and select almost any one item for 50% off, and then we'll load on the free stuff. Just enter this very exclusive code, BABE16, at checkout, and you'll get 10 tantalizing free gifts, including a sexy item for him, a special toy for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And six extra special bonus items that are sure to rev your engine, pique your curiosity, Mm. and even blow you away. Plus... 
free shipping. Always sent in discreet packaging. Go to adamandeve.com now. Get 50% off plus the 10 free gifts when you enter the exclusive offer code BABE16. That's BABE16. Because without it, no free stuff. That's BABE16 at adamandeve.com. You're listening to House of Cards. You are more in need of a night in Atlantic City than any man I've ever met. I'd say sit down at a table, go for dinner, see a show, take a walk on the boardwalk and smell the salt air. But if you're anything like me, nothing after sit down at a table is going to happen. Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with Joe Dorsey, the subject of the book Joe's Dash, from million-dollar drug busts to multi-million-dollar collections for the Las Vegas casinos. One of the most interesting roles that you had with casinos was collecting outstanding debts from customers. I mean, I, I for me, I think I was looking at it, and one of the most challenging things I was thinking of when collecting debts from other countries is the laws and the culture. I mean, some of the countries that you had to go to, it was illegal for you to try and get debts from a casino from a customer. And also you had to deal with the culture in which, you know, the different ways of thinking. I mean, one of the guys wouldn't pay you because he wanted to get written apologies from casino executives. Are those the two most important things to understand when you're collecting for a casino, the laws and the culture? Yes, it is. Yeah, number one, the laws are what dictate what you can do, and or you're going to end up in a jailhouse over there eating rice and fish heads, <laughs> and you don't want that. Trust me. And, and the, the culture, I was fortunate. All my buddies from DEA have been up and promoted, and they were all over Southeast Asia, all over Asia. And so if I needed assistance for, uh, say, you know, I'm going over to collecting million million dollars, and, and these cops over there, they make fourteen hundred dollars a year. The, my DEA buddies, they hook me up with the, uh, you know, the higher command guys in the national police usually, and uh, they would assign guys to me. But the DEA guys would educate me on the culture. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, the person that educated me on the Japanese culture in Japan was an active member working for the U.S. government who went to work for General MacArthur when he went in to manage the Japanese country after World War II in 1945. So this person was just, I knew everything about Japanese people. And uh, you take that knowledge. and then But the one thing you don't do is you don't want to go out and be a thug. Mm-hmm. And so you got to pay, because they don't. They're, I happened to start in 1988. It's when the economy collapsed in Japan. And all these guys were, they were all players before, and they paid. And, you know, they they were millionaires. And they're going to be millionaires again. So I don't want to alienate them. I want them to come back. But I'm going to give them the best way to pay us back. And uh, it worked. Mm -hmm. Except in in one case, one guy... (laughs) He was just a real. He owed a half a million bucks. He he, he you know they put up a half a million, mm-hmm. and then they get the half a million in credit. So 
I'd go to him, and he's a real schmuck. I mean, this guy, it was my fault. I wasn't even there when he lost the money. What the, how can it be my fault? And finally, I said to him, I said, okay, here's how it's going to work. And I took that at 1099 form. And I said, you owe us $500,000. But this 1099 form here says that we're going to forgive $100,000 of that debt. And we're going to, of course, the rest of these forms, one will go to us, one will go to the United States IRS, and the other one will go to the Japanese tax authority. At that time, there was a guy by the name of Mizuno who owned a country club here in Las Vegas. The Japanese authorities grabbed him on a tax problem. He went to jail for two years before they even heard the case. I explained that to this guy, and he you could see his mind going. <laughs> and, and he's going, oh, man. Not only do I have to explain the half a million, I got to explain where I got the 500000 to get the half a million, you know, to the tax authority. He says, well, can we can we make a deal that I I, I only pay the four hundred? I said, no, we're not doing that. We had to do a lot of traveling and back and forth to get this. Now, and uh, he paid the half a million. Wow. How dangerous yeah. was your job? I mean, I remember a story from the book that you received a bag full of cash from a casino customer to settle their debt in the same room of a restaurant where there were Japanese organized crime members. I mean, how potentially yeah. dangerous were these collection trips that you made? Well, they they it, it really depended uh, on, you know, the country. Uh, but in Japan... I knew the customers very well, most of them. Uh, here's one of the, I'll give you that before I tell you about that organized crime. I had a guy who was devastated by the collapse of the economy in Japan. Honorable guy. Used to come every quarter and gamble a million bucks. I went to him, realized that, you know, he this guy can't pay. And I've got people that can check on his assets and stuff. And, and I said, do what you can when you can, okay? You know, something like five years later, that guy called me up. I wouldn't even work at the casino anymore. And he called me up and said, I've got that $500,000. And I said, okay, let me call the casino and set you up with somebody and you can settle your debt. And that's, you had people like that. I mean, you don't want to strong arm people like that. So the story you're talking about, I had a lawyer with me because I had just settled a big debt in Hong Kong. Usually I didn't take lawyers. It was my way or the highway. I meet the guy. He owns a bunch of clubs in the Ginza, which is world famous for being expensive. And he's a nice guy. I know the guy. I've collected from him before. And I meet him in a section. He owed 300 grand. And I, I met him in a section of his place that was wasn't open yet but you could see the bar and everything else going on so i got the lawyer with me and he's new he didn't know anything about this stuff so i went in and a customer came up brown shopping bag that you get in any store in the country and he plops it on the table and he starts taking out three hundred thousand dollars in u.s currency and i said whoa hold it I said, you don't have to count. I'm not counting that. Put it back in a bag. I said, I've been dealing with you for years. I said, you trust me. I'm going to 
go home and FedEx your markers back, you know. He says, yeah, no problem. And I said, good. Well, at that time, a guy walked in in a suit. There was about five other guys with him in suits. The customer that I was with runs over there, and he meets them and sits them down, and they're sitting talking. And I can tell they're talking. I don't miss much because of my working undercover. I know everything that's going on around me. So I'm looking over, and I'm watching this guy, and you can see he's telling the guy that came in in the suit who we are. So they're doing their thing and all that. And and I said, okay, let's go to the lawyer. He says, I'm going to go over and say goodbye to the customer. I said, don't go near the customer. I said, stay away from him. So we get up, and I see the, the guy that's with the, the customer, and I see him, you know, motion one of his guys. And now we're walking down this alleyway with 300 grand in cash and and I know that, you know, I know who the guy was. The guy, I believe, was the head of the Yakuza for Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I know that there ain't going to be a crime within five miles of the head of the Yakuza in Tokyo. <laughs> so we're pretty safe going out there. And we got uh, to the cab, put him in, and I turned, and he sent one of his bodyguards to follow us out to make sure we were all right. And I knew he was there. And, but the lawyer, he didn't notice him. And, uh, you know, I bowed and thanked him, and he did the same. And off we go to the hotel with a bag full of cash. Hmm. And, and the lawyer is saying, why didn't you want me to meet him? I says, that guy looked like could be the head of the Yakuza. You go over there and want to shake his hand, get your picture taken. I said, your gaming days are over, pal. And... <laughs> Who, who would take the pictures? I said, you don't know who's following this guy around. <laughs> I said, come on. And uh, so he was he was really excited. Well, then we're walking down the alley with all this money. I said, nobody's going to bother us. Yakuza guy was looking up for us, or whoever that guy was. I don't know whether he was in the Yakuza or not. And uh, so he went through. He said, you do this all the time? And I said, yeah. He says, can you do it? And I said, very carefully, let me tell you. And he, 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 uh, he was a mess, but he never asked the question. He never asked the question. Now, you were traveling a lot for your job, and it seems like you were always in Asia, even though you don't like Asian food, which, by the way, was the funniest part of your book. But, but, and by the way, if you, you certainly pick up Joe's Dash and read for the raccoon story. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's, going to, it's a, a tease for the readers. But you must have a very supportive wife with uh, all your travels and things like that. Tell me about your family. Well, it's just right now it's myself and Karen. I have two children from another marriage, and uh, they live in California, and they're in their 50s now. And uh, they're both doing exceptionally well career-wise, and um, they couldn't wait to read the book because they heard all the stories before. <laughs> they want to see which ones are left. Out. And uh, but there's just Karen. Karen, right today, after Karen was a singer, mm-hmm. and she did a USO tour back in 1969 at Southeast Asia, and she performed all over Atlantic City. She was at the uh, Claridge. And she was at the, is it Resorts International you have there? Yep. She sang there for a few years. Uh, she loved singing in Atlantic City. She said that the response from the customers or their 
people that go to see him is incredible. She says it's just totally. It was like doing a USO tour, you know. Those those guys over in Southeast they hadn't seen a girl in a year, so you know they're going to stand on their head applauding and stuff. So, but she got tired of the travel. So when she was singing at Caesars, she quit, mm-hmm. went to work over at the at the uh, Hilton in VIP services mm-hmm. in Gomes. When we left there, he took he told me he says we're taking care of him with us. I says, yeah. He said she's going to be the director of VIP services. And then from there at the Dunes, she was the director of entertainment. But uh, she left there and went to work for a small place called Ellis Island Casino out here in Las Vegas. It's a local place. Well, it used to be, not anymore. And uh, went to work for Gary Ellis when he first bought uh, the place from his father. It was a small place. had 15 slot machines and a restaurant. And now they have something like 20... 24 village pub restaurants throughout the uh, Las Vegas area and Ellis Island, and they're all doing exceptionally well. And Gary Ellis invented a uh, system for slot tracking called uh, called marker tracks, and it's going to be huge. Trust me, it's going to go through the roof. And uh, so when Karen went to work for him, he's just a small place, and she's been with him 32 years and expanded it all his business to what it is today and eventually became the president of the company. Now his three daughters have all graduated from colleges in California and they're in there and and Karen right now is just basically an assistant to Gary and the girls are running the property. Joe, we don't have a lot of time left, but how can people get a copy of Joe's Dash from Million Dollar Drug Bust to Multi-Million Dollar Collections for Las Vegas Casinos? Would Amazon be the best place to get it? Amazon is the best place. You can go to B. Dalton and places, but they're just going to order it for you. Or they can go to a publishing company. Huntington Press, Las Vegas. That's right. (laughs) Good old Anthony Curtis. He's going to hate me for that one. (laughs) 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 You got his name in on the interview, so he should be happy about it. Oh, yeah. It's... uh, He's a great guy. Oh, I mean, yeah. you talk about guys, he kind of knows everything about gaming, especially games. Mm-hmm. This guy's it. This guy, he is the guru of that, pal. And, uh, but anyway, that's where they can get it. And, uh, hopefully they will go out and buy it. It's, uh, a lot of people have, you know, the result, the reviews coming back are incredible. And that's not from family members. These are from people I don't even know. So, <laughs> Joe Dorsey, author of Joe's Dash, from Million Dollar Drug Bust to Multi-Million Dollar Collections for Las Vegas Casinos. Thanks for coming on and talking about the book and your life. It's an amazing story, and I urge everyone out there to pick up a copy of Joe's Dash. Thanks for talking with us about it. I appreciate all your help, Dave, and uh, Doug also. So I hopefully uh, may be talking to you again. I hope so. Well, that'll do it for us this week. I'll see you next time on House of Cards.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.